Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you recall, Don, John, and Will Robinson had left the spaceship to set up a series of microwave relay stations. They were unaware that within moments, the chariot was to be suddenly engulfed by a rain of death. Danger! Danger! You see something? No, nothing. Media storm! Mother, come quickly. Can you tell what they are? I don't know, but there must be hundreds of them. Or oh, thousands. Isn't that the area where the chariot is? Head for those rocks over there. Jupiter to the chariot. Jupiter to the chariot. Can you hear me, John? Do you think they've been hit? Mom. I don't know. I knew it. Doomsday. Welcome back, folks, for episode 13 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 13th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled, One of Our Dogs is Missing. Now, this is one that I know I watched last year, but not one that I recall watching multiple times. Did you remember this one? Actually, the only TV memories I recall of a dog with a Robinson involved the mother calling after a collie named Lassie. (laughs) So, no, uh -uh. uh-uh. Yeah, uh, I remember that one too. So, (laughs) all right, we'll have fun talking about this one, I think. Uh, A few production notes before we begin with the story. The writer for this one is the 43-year-old William Welch. He's returning for his second of four episodes that he wrote for Lost in Space. He had previously written The Hungry Sea, which I think we both enjoyed. We remember that Welch was a workhorse for Irwin Allen. He penned 34 scripts of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, 8 for Time Tunnel, 10 for Land of the Giants. And his inspiration for this story was the real-life example of several dogs that were sent into space by the Soviets in the late 50s through the mid-1960s. I think they called those uh, East German Shepherds. A very (laughs) interesting factoid. Most of those early ones either died or were euthanized in space. So I guess the Soviets were taking no chances of any defectors. Yeah, I guess so. That's kind of sad. Yeah. 
the director for this one was the 43-year-old Sutton Raleigh. We remember he had a good career directing TV westerns. This episode was filmed from the 16th through the 24th of November, 1965. Raleigh was returning for his third effort on Lost in Space. He had just directed The Oasis and Wish Upon a Star. He did go a little over his allotted film schedule, completing this shoot in seven versus six days. This one aired on Wednesday night, December 8th, 1965, and it did earn a summer repeat on the 24th of August 1966. All the regular characters are featured. We have a guest star again. It's the 28-year-old Charles Deercop. He played the alien mutant. Deercop had a very productive TV acting career without wearing a monster costume. He appeared in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Land of the Giants, Star Trek, but he was best known for the 91 episodes of Police Woman that he starred in playing Detective Pete Royster. Oh, so let me get this straight. <laughs> he actually played a dick on Policewoman named Peter? <laughs> those, those writers were getting away with murder. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I didn't even make that connection, Kurt. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, let's, uh, with that, let's get into the story here. This one opens Act 1 with a nice tight teaser, a little over two minutes long. As usual, the narrator is catching us up from last week's cliffhanger. You might have noticed that the cliffhanger that we saw last week was much more involved than the teaser that we get this week. We actually got to see the boys packing up the chariot to depart. But in this one, we start right off with the men on a driving expedition in the chariot to set up a series of microwave relay stations when the robot warns them of danger, danger. It's a meteor storm, and boy, is it a doozy. The sky is raining meteorites all around the chariot. And it's some nice effect shots using the miniature chariot with some pyrotechnics combined with live action inside the chariot. Those miniatures always look great. You can even detect the characters inside them. The only tell is that the figurines never move. I also like the way they zoom in on the robot for this warning. I don't think that was in the cliffhanger where they zoom in on the robot uh, just before he starts yelling. Did they? No, I I think you're right. I noticed that too when I was watching it. They do a real zoom in on him. They didn't go to the trouble of turning him on this time. (laughs) I think last time he was was off and they turned him on. Yeah, which just seems a little odd. But nonetheless, I I love that. And it was a, a cool cliffhanger. Yeah. Cutting back to the ship, the girls and Smith are sitting inside the Jupiter 2 when Judy alerts everyone to the danger which the men are in because the scanner is picking up that storm of meteorites. She even says to Maureen, isn't that where the chariot is? Uh, And I'll give them credit. They they did finally change the graphic on the radar scope from our old favorite three bars out animation that we've seen repeatedly. This one looked more like a a heavy rain shower than meteorites, but uh, eh, I thought it was still effective. It's not really how a radar would depict it, but it sells the idea of a meteor storm to the audience. Well, I mean, you know, just because we're not pilots doesn't mean we're all stupid. I mean, you can still (laughs) see the, the bullseye orientation of the radar screen is clearly a view from above but the meteors are shown from a ground perspective streaking across the screen horizontally like a blizzard instead of vertically like rocks falling from the sky. It's kind of funny, really, but it's also understandable because it's a lot more visually exciting than just seeing dots appear and disappear, you know? Right. Kind of like adding rocket noise in the vacuum of space to, you know, gin up the tension. 
right? We get the idea. There's something bad happening here. And the chariot is really getting pummeled, though, and the music is screaming deadly peril. But somehow, even though they've stopped moving right when those meteors started falling, they avoid a direct hit. And then John finally tells Don to head for some large rocks to seek cover, which he does. Yeah, better late than never. I mean, you would think a seasoned pilot would do that sort of thing instinctively. <laughs> but I guess Don is so conditioned to take orders from John by now, he won't even wipe his nose without permission. <laughs> Well, we cut back to the ship. Maureen has decided not to keep this to herself for a change. She tries to raise the boys on the radio, and she's not able to get a hold of them, and the girls are fearing the worst. And to make matters worse, before we go to opening credits, those meteors are beginning to fall in the vicinity of the Jupiter 2. And the teaser ends with a zoom into the terrified Dr. Smith, who utters what could be his last words. I knew it. Doomsday. <laughs> no damn. <laughs> It's an exciting way to start the episode. I don't think I'm going to be able to leave my seat until we get back from opening credits. Yeah, they're getting a little too good at this uh, formula, aren't they? They really are. When we return from the titles, we're back inside the ship with Smith and the girls clustered around the radio, trying to reach the chariot without success. We still don't know if the boys have survived, but at least that meteor shower has ended, and Smith tells her it's no use, they can't hear her. And she says their radio probably went out during the storm, and Smith says, uh, Storm? Did you say storm, madam? It's over. <laughs> Jupiter 2 to chariot. Jupiter 2 to chariot. John, can you hear me? John, please come in. It's no use, my dear. It's obvious they can't hear you. Well, the storm must have knocked their radio out. They'll make contact with us as soon as they can. Did you say storm, madam? Yes, it was a meteor storm, naturally. Ridiculous. If you wish to spare the tender feelings of your little brood, go right ahead. I, at least, am willing to face the truth. Suppose you tell us what the truth is, Dr. Smith. Gladly. We have been through a barrage. A barrage? What's going on in that devious mind of yours? My dear madam, I can hardly expect you as a non-military female to comprehend, but it is painfully clear to me. Suppose you explain it to us. Very well. It's a universal military tactic to lay down a barrage before launching an invasion. An invasion? By whom? Ah, my girl, that is the terrifying question. Who knows what dreadful creatures inhabit the reaches of this galaxy? But I fear we are now about to find out. There couldn't be any truth to what he says, could there? Oh, no, of course not, dear. It was a shower of heavy meteorites, nothing more. Brave reassurances, madam. And I suppose it's wise of you, since there's nothing we can do to oppose such a force. Undoubtedly, your menfolk are already prisoners. Or worse. Why do you even have to think things like that? I'm going to prove how wrong you are. I'm going over into the next valley where those meteors were hitting and make certain that John and the others are all right. In the dead of night, madam? No, I'll wait till dawn, and then I'll go. No, we must not split our forces at this crucial time. It would be suicide. Very well, then we'll all go. And she does mean all. <laughs> Indeed. Next morning, Smith and the ladies are in that next valley over, examining the effects from the previous night's meteor storm. And we see some nice, large, smoking craters in the sand. I think the set dressers did a good job here. Everyone but Smith is satisfied that what they're looking at is meteor craters. He's sticking to his version. He says, they're obviously shell holes. Yeah, it's kind of like watching uh, Fox and CNN reporting on the news of the day. 
They both see the exact same thing, but they interpret it completely opposite ways. Those craters are basically, um, well, it's just fog machines, but they have to run it through a ice cooler in order to get that fog to lay down low like that. It's a, it's a cool effect. And then at other times, we're going to see them superimpose that fog over scenes of like the monster climbing out. I w- yeah. That way they can control just how thick it is, because otherwise they run the risk that you're not going to see the monster the way that you want them to. So that's why they do that. Well, it's pretty cool, and they don't see any sign of the chariot. So Maureen says something about, well, at least we know they weren't hit. And Smith says they were probably captured again, so he's continuing to stoke the fears. So at that point, Maureen tries to contact John again. This time he does answer, and he's explained they've been using auxiliary power since the storm, which explains the loss of communication. It's a relief to finally know that the boys are okay, but... When Marine tells John they're away from the camp, he's not thrilled. He immediately starts to sort of lecture, I, I wish you wouldn't wander too far from the ship while we're away. She assures him that they'll scoot right back. But before he signs off, John tells her that they'll be unable to use the radio much until they can stop to make repairs. And that will give Smith some more opportunities to spread panic among the ladies. That's probably exactly what he's thinking at that point. Oh, goody. (laughs) (laughs) No sooner does she sign off with John than Penny alerts everyone to a new discovery. She's climbed up on a rock that's next to what appears to be a damaged space capsule. Marine scolds her to get down and get away from it. I'm already thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this is just going to feed into Smith's paranoia about an alien invasion. He's not going to drop his fear that easily. I'm thinking next time, if they want to leave a man behind, choose Will. Well, if you had to pick a man between Dr. Smith and Will, the only mature choice is obviously Will. (laughs) Indeed. Now, that space capsule was uh, was kind of interesting looking. What would you think of it? Well, was that the reworked version of Traveling Man? It seemed like the exact same size, but with a different windscreen and a different top and the bottom amputated off. Yeah, it could have been. I, I looked at it a couple times, it, and that's I guess that's what made it look interesting to me, is that it didn't look exactly like the Traveling Man one, but it was like the, a similar size to it. I don't think it had the fins or the antennas on it, but yeah, the, uh-huh. the windscreen was a little bit different. Well, of course, we're all spoiled after seeing Invaders of the Fifth Dimension, but it only makes sense that if this is from Earth, which is, we're going to learn it's supposed to be, that it would be a similar model. Uh, model and design as the other earth capsules right right judy comments right away that it's small even for one man which is similar to hapgood's ship and where's it from earth or is it the advanced scout ship of dr smith's alien invasion force after all if it is an alien ship who's to say that the aliens are close to our side they could be little green men from mars so maybe smith's not that crazy but like you say we'll soon get to the bottom of this mystery well of course they wouldn't be from mars i mean that'd be the one place they wouldn't be from they'd be on the other side of the galaxy you know they could be little green men could be little green onions who knows yes little green onion men they're the horrible ones with the terrible breath Uh, Marine, this is the other thing. Marine touches the damaged capsule and she says, oh, it's still warm. I wouldn't really advise that (laughs) necessarily. Uh, What about about all that space virus we were worried about before? You know, that's all just like gone out the window. So it's warm. So it's recently crashed on the planet and looks like there was someone in it because she finds an oxygen release valve. And Smith is now right back to thinking that the sky is falling because he says there's probably thousands of these capsules scattered around the planet. Marine tries to shut Smith down, but he's adamant that they're all in danger. I like this ending part here because there were some real 
nicely framed camera shots as well as a, a cool overhead crane shot looking from above and down at the cast along with that capsule and it did kind of give me the sense that we're watching this from the perspective of some hidden force as they head back to the ship the camera follows the castaways from overhead for a bit and then lingers on one of those smoking craters as the music grows more menacing we hear what sounds like some kind of a creature growl yeah yeah it's really cool how they don't show the creature at all at this point we just hear it coming from the crater and they leave the actual image of the monster to our imagination and it's a pretty sure bet that whatever we imagine is going to be scarier than what you know the lost in space makeup people actually come up with thanks to the cbs (laughs) censors but uh yeah it was a it was a nice touch it was, and, and there's a couple. There's a couple little curveballs in this because now that you mention it, at that point, I originally was kind of thinking we're listening to the sound of whoever was in that capsule, but we're going to find out a little bit differently from that. So when they finally reach the Jupiter again, Fr- Smith freezes for a second and says, "What? What's this? Look!" And they're all greeted with evidence that someone has been ransacking their ship in their absence. It's uh, not Little Red Riding Hood, though, because there's dozens of empty food cans scattered outside the ship. Someone's been there, and Smith wastes no time running inside to inventory the galley. And then he comes out and gives a great little line. I thought this was so funny. (laughs) They took all ham. (laughs) (laughs) The barbarian has struck. It's but, you know, I mean, Smith is uh, obviously the, the writers are having a little fun with that because we all know Smith is the ham. But, you know, he's really more than the ham. He's more like the ham with cheese, mm, I thought. Yeah, exactly. But he, he really he really hams it up on that particular scene. I mean, you can tell he's he's mugging for the camera. He really is. So he knows his job at that point, you know, and he accepts it. Mm-hmm. Well, later, Maureen and Judy break out the force field projector, and they get it set up to keep them safe through the night from whoever or whatever was responsible for breaking and entering. I thought they were very careful with that force field projector. Apparently, in this case, they have to use it like some kind of a spray painter or something because they're kind of sort of turning it back and forth in front of the ship, and Maureen's giving all these instructions to Judy as they're doing it together. Careful, gently now, very slowly. We'll cover the whole area. Like they're like they're painting, you know, or something. Yeah, well, that's actually very realistic. If you've ever seen like women try to nail a, a nail into the wall, a guy just goes up there, pound, pound, pound. But the women are like measuring it and like <laughs> we got to find this stud. And they're so much more precise. Yeah. Well, they're very careful with that one, and it just goes to show you this: the force field is sort of adapted to whatever they need for that particular episode because I can remember just a few episodes ago they just turned it on and it sort of worked they didn't go through any of this stuff after they get it set up and she says it's good Judy tests it by throwing a rock towards the force field and it explodes right on cue that's again another little difference because previously again when that rubberoid touched it it didn't explode he just sort of got some electrical shocks for his trouble but oh well hey I'm just relieved she adjusted to level where now the force field is much higher than it was last week when it was just like a couple of feet above the ground. Remember? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Only your ankles were safe unless you you hit the dirt when attacked. They should put the women in charge of all the defenses as far as I'm concerned. Good point. This this actual care to detail apparently is yielding great results. Mm. Well, they decide to leave the force field on all night to make sure that nothing gets into the ship again. Maureen asks Judy where Dr. Smith is, and she says, well, he's locked himself in his cabin. Then Maureen adds, well, we've got to prove that we can take care of ourselves until the men get back. And they'd probably have a better chance of doing that without Dr. Smith. For sure. 
Yeah. Later that night, everyone in the ship is awakened by the cries of some unknown creature, and Smith Smith pops out of his cabin, armed to the teeth and in full Ebenezer Scrooge getup. He's got a night shirt, <laughs> night cap, and candlesticks, and, and uh, yeah, and a candle. I mean, where did that come from? <laughs> I know. It was. I mean, it. it and it's yeah. on a candlestick too. It's not yes. just a candle. It's a candle on one of those old timey candlesticks. Exactly. That. I've never heard anything like that before. I thought I was having a nightmare. I'm, I'm scared. Sorry, dear. Never fear, ladies. Zachary Smith is with you to the end. Which may be much closer than we thought. Dr. Smith, what are you doing with our guns? The time has come for a firm hand. I have assumed formal command for our last hand, but rest assured, I will sell your lives dearly. <laughs> For an airtight spaceship built for the vacuum of space, that craft sure lets in a lot of noises, don't you think? I mean, they just maybe they left the porthole open or something. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Or maybe it's the the waste disposal chute was open again. That's probably uh, what it was. Did yeah. you notice Maureen's hair, though? Her hair was, like, long in the back for this scene. That's right. And I and then after the scene, I said, where is all this hair hiding? Because she doesn't seem to be using, you know, hairpins to hold it up in the other scenes. It seems like it's cropped pretty close to her head. So Yep. I think I read, though, that, that she was actually, except for those scenes where she's got her hair down like that, she was actually wearing a, a wig for most of the series. Uh-huh. Uh, June Locker, yeah. too. I'm surprised she wasn't wearing rollers in this scene. But, yeah. <laughs> that would have been oh, pretty but... typical 1960s, wouldn't it? And then, like, the the face mask, the po- the, the pomade. Yeah, that would have been great, have, a, have that mummy's face mask on. But, <laughs> you know, we already know that they have a special uh, machine that does their hair. Remember uh, that? That's right, so. with, all, <laughs> with all the coils and the... <laughs> Yeah, the Bride of Frankenstein, (laughs) Bride of Frankenstein machine. Uh, The only thing they were missing was the the Jacob's ladder. (laughs) Jacob's ladder is on both sides. Oh, man. Next morning, Maureen and Judy are seen conducting an armed search of the area outside to see if they can discover any clues as to what kind of creature they're dealing with. And they pause for a little water break, and Judy notices this piece of fur caught on a tree limb. That was a really large piece of fur. This is a big creature if he leaves so-called little pieces like that. Well, maybe it's uh, Cyclops dandruff. That stuff is so large it could fall like meteorites. Maureen says she's never seen any fur quite like that, and she tells Judy that she doesn't know what kind of creature it came from. Again, she says she wishes John was there, but she quickly adds they're not going to start acting like helpless females. They decide to take it back to the lab and run some tests, but suddenly they're startled by some sounds of movement. And again, we see one of those precariously placed large rocks on top of another big large rock formation. Those things are all over the place. They really should do something about those. Uh, We've seen this bit before. Yeah, you'd think all the uh, giants walking around would knock them over just, you know, to relieve the boredom or something. But no, maybe they're the ones that are placing them up there on the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the rock does fall to the ground. Fortunately, the girls are far enough away they don't get penned down like Don did a few episodes ago. When that rock is gone, we're expecting to see that creature we heard growling, but instead, it's this cute little dog that looks something like a beagle. I'm not sure really what kind of breed that was, but he doesn't look anything alien. He doesn't look threatening at all. Well, based on the boulder-pushing abilities, it's probably a rock wilder. (laughs) 
has <laughs> a rock <laughs> wilder. Is that what you said? <laughs> it has to have at least a little alien DNA because that boulder was the size of a small suitcase. So this creature has strength far beyond that of a normal dog. And just because it's cute doesn't mean that it wasn't trying to kill them with that falling rock trick. You know, all dogs mm. are descended from wolves, so there's always a little room for doubt there. I think Smith may be onto something here. Well, the dog seems friendly enough. He barks a little bit, but he's not scared of them. He jumps right down into Maureen's arms. You know, it's also funny because they immediately jump to the conclusion that the dog was responsible for looting their food supply. But there aren't many dogs that size that I can imagine tearing open 10 cans like that. Although he did just push that rock over, like you mentioned, so that's something in his favor, I suppose. But Yeah, this, uh, is, this is underdog. Yeah. I would have thought they'd been a little bit more cautious about picking it up, but... Anyway, he looks like a perfectly sweet little earth dog, so... Well, based on the size of that ham tin alone, his stomach would be dragging on the ground. I think you're right that they were jumping to a conclusion and that the creature in the pit crashed their little Jupiter 2 picnic. I mean, right. I think the audience is supposed to conclude that because that, that ham was huge. The one that Smith came oh, yeah. out was it's the size of a watermelon. Right, right. As the act draws to a close, Marine, Judy, and the pup head back to the Jupiter, but not before we get another shock. And the direction here is good also because we get another one of those tracking shots. We follow the girls for a bit, and then the camera lingers again in one of those still-smoking craters. And the music is telling us what to expect, and it's the worst. We're not going to be disappointed because we finally see emerging from that quicksand is some kind of horned, hairy, monstrous alien beast. And I, I like the way they drew this out, and they had the fog like you were talking about before he sort of slowly crawls out of the crater and he's really facing away from us when you see him at first so we don't get a look at his face but we hear all this growling and snorting and when he finally frees himself i guess we know what really ransacked that galley and what made all those howls the night before and what left that strange piece of fur behind when he turns around to show his face it's really something to behold what what did you think of the alien beast well, you got to remember I'm also an Outer Limits fan, so my standards are a little higher than, you know, a bear suit with pasted <laughs> facial hair and a pair of horns and two but outward turned fangs. The fangs, though, Kurt, the yeah, fangs. Yeah, the fangs, the fangs. But the, the spooky growling and snarling sounds really help sell it, not to mention the dire music. So honestly, he reminded me a little bit of... You know, Eddie from the Munsters and the Gremlin from the Twilight Zone episode, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. You remember that one? It was oh, one of yeah, my favorites. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, scary, scary, like Outer Limits scary, but by Lost in Space standards, this is pretty scary. Yeah. And, and like I said, the, the, the music and the, the uh, growling definitely do make it scary. Yeah. Well, you know... He was scarier to me when he was facing the other way. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> well, I, I always give them a little bit of, of leeway here because the, the costume designer, the guy that also made all the monster costumes, that Paul Zastopnevich, you know, he was pretty good with working what he had, and they were always getting cautioned by CBS not to make things look too frightening. But honestly, in the book, they said that uh, Welch's description of the mutant was pretty much how it was realized on film. And he he said that uh, that's one of the reasons why Irwin Allen liked Welch, because he always described pretty interesting monsters. But yet, yeah, it's it's pretty basic, and it's not it's not Outer Limits tier <laughs> alien. Yeah, but I mean, one of the reasons I continue to like Irwin Allen, despite some of his creative decisions, is because deep down, I suspect that he and I love the exact same thing. You know, more danger, more excitement, more monsters. But CBS kept yanking back on anything. Oh, yeah you know, that made your heart pump and kind of dumbing it down for the youngest possible uh, viewer. 
Irwin's choice was either to obey and, you know, make it work with the stipulations that he was given or let his series get crushed, killed, destroyed, you know. So right. to be fair, that monster was probably about as scary as they would allow it to be. Yeah, yeah. And and you also made a good point. It's the whole effect. It's the, the growling, the fog, and then the music. They used it, the music from the that they used for the bubble creatures during the derelict, that Hermanstein music. And I think it, it added to the overall effect. So Yeah, I can tell you my kids were terrified of it. Before we go to commercial, the, that mutant has finally freed himself from the quicksand, and we're left to worry just what that mutant might do to the ladies and Smith left behind at the Jupiter 2. When we come back from break to start Act 2, the ladies are in the garden now. Everything's calm. Penny's having fun with her new little puppy, and she's already asking if she can keep the dog, but Maureen's smart enough not to commit until she can ask John. Penny then decides it's time to feed her new pet, and then Maureen and Judy discuss their new addition to the family. I like the direction here again because we get some nice close-ups of June Larkart and Marta Kristen, and they're both very attractive ladies, but I couldn't help but notice that June, being the slightly older of the two actresses was getting what I call the the Bill O'Reilly camera effect where yeah the soft focus the soft focus and then when it cuts back to Marta she's absolutely crystal clear no crow's feet to to hide or anything like that but then again time and gravity catches up with all of us so it's understandable and to be fair I mean you know when you're that age what you see is a little bit blurry right (laughs) because your (laughs) eyesight's failing so maybe it's just kind of their own perspective of how they see themselves yeah my dad used to have a funny joke about that about there's a reason why men's vision goes later on well let's not go into that (laughs) i hope you didn't share that joke with your mom (laughs) no no (laughs) yeah well they're quite certain that that dog didn't make those growling noises maybe the house but not the growling noises furthermore how did he get on the planet Boreen said something about well he would have had to be 50 years old by then how did he survive all that time and how did a little small ship like that get to the far side of the galaxy lots of questions and not many answers Yeah, but to be fair, they actually did offer up an answer to that age issue later on. Did you catch that? Uh, Refresh me. They mentioned that maybe the dog was being used to test the the freeze tubes and that they broke on impact. That's right. But I mean, you don't get that until the very end. And and I kind of appreciate that because I like what I don't like are just, you know, questions that either are unanswered or that cannot be answered. But here it seems like it cannot be answered and they dangle it out until pretty much the end. Yeah, that's good. I'd forgotten they they did that. And I like that a lot better than just immediately giving you the answer or whatever, like you say. So that's good. The ladies go inside the ship as the pup is finishing his dinner, and Penny also runs inside to get some water. And after they leave, we see Dr. Smith returning to the camp, and of course he's surprised to see a little dog eating his kibbles on the ramp leading to the main hatch. And he sort of takes the unexpected sight in, and then he becomes very cautious, and he starts doing all these exaggerated moves, hiding behind the, the force field projector, and there's lighthearted music, and we can sense we're in for some uh, classic Jonathan Harris humor. Next, he starts talking to that dog as if he's some sort of sentient creature and when the dog barks he apologizes for interrupting the creature's meal. Smith is acting like he's frightened with the alien animal, but he's also trying to negotiate with it. It's meant to be funny, of course. Yeah, he's not only the great uh, negotiator, he's also the great collaborator, you know. 
<laughs> yes, yes. He claims to be the leader of the Earthlings, you know, it's that sort of thing. The dog keeps barking at Smith, and Smith continues to try to work a deal, uh, one of those take-me-to-your-leader conferences with the aliens, but the dog isn't interested in it. And then Penny, not noticing Dr. Smith crouching behind the force field projector, returns with the dog's water, and she starts having a saner conversation with the little guy. She's just talking to the pup like you would do with any pet. And this is funny because all the while, we see Dr. Smith behind her, looking on with pity at her apparent lack of understanding. He even says something about, poor deluded child. If only you knew. If only you knew. <laughs> it's almost like that in Shakespeare, you know, they would repeat a, a phrase or whatever to let you know the scene's coming to a close. Mm. So that's how we know. Next, we cut to the lab, and Judy's looking at that alien fur under a microscope. It's obviously not from the dog, but if not... What creature left it behind? And Judy also says something interesting to Maureen. She says, I understand you don't want to talk about this with Penny. Anyway, Maureen doesn't know. She doesn't have an idea, but she's looking in the bookshelf for John's diary or notebook because apparently he left behind some notes on the life forms of the strange planet they're marooned on. Notes that could help them with the answer. I keep trying to warn John, if you're going to write stuff in that diary that you don't want anyone else to read, you better start using one of those diaries with a little chastity belt type lock in it you know because <laughs> what else are they going to do for entertainment on that rock but snoop around and gossip not yeah. to mention smith is lurking around you know he's definitely going to read all your confidential entries i mean come on <laughs> well she finds the diary and i love this because she says oh here it is and it's marked priority a now maybe priority a would have been a nice thing to share with the rest of the family because <laughs> the music changes we get this foreboding music and then we get a voiceover of guy williams telling us that his greatest concern his greatest concern again why didn't you share this with anybody is that the planet might produce mutants that could pose a deadly threat to our castaways my greatest concern for our safety is the possibility of encountering mutants creatures with no exact counterpart in nature the giants are probably one form of mutant. I fear there may be others. They seem to grow and evolve through a process of metamorphosis, taking on new forms by absorbing all types of organic matter. Now, if this wild theory is true, any mutant we encounter may try to absorb one of us. Well, I mean, I think this thing scared me on a variety of levels. The first part that scared me was where they're, they're sneaking a peek into his diary. And then, and then you hear the voice of Guy Williams. You know, if I heard his voice, I'd like, whoa, 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 sorry. I, I, we were just setting this down on the table. Uh, so anyway, his voice pops up out of nowhere, and it's kind of jarring. But then what he's basically acknowledging here is that if it's something that's threatening the lives of everybody— He's not going to tell him about it. You know, this is just going to be our little secret again, you know. So uh, even if he's wrong about this theory, who knows what else is in that diary? Sheesh. Well, this is another thing that made that monster seem more scary to me because he mentioned that it could absorb you know, not just eat, you know, but absorbing. And I kept picturing every time we see the the mutant from now on, him just grabbing someone and the person sort of dissolving in his arms or something like that. So, yeah, it's like something out of the blob or maybe even the thing from another right. world. Uh-huh. That, the right. remake, not the original, but the remake, the John Carpenter version. I mean, that was even scarier. Yes. But again, even Judy asked the question, we're all asking, why? Why wouldn't John have bothered to warn them about this danger? And then, you know, <laughs> Maureen says, well, you know, it's only only a theory, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, well, well. 
this is in funny. that case. <laughs> yeah. So, well, he's not a theory anymore. He's real because we've seen him. But not to worry, Maureen says, as long as the force field is working, we're all perfectly safe. And I was, as soon as they said that line, I was going, uh oh. <laughs> Let's yeah, go really. check on the force field. <laughs> or, you know, maybe even check on Smith because he's usually causing a big problem about now. But did you notice that when Judy left the room, she was carrying that mutant fur in her bare hand. Right. And just casually drops a big clump of it on the floor as they walk away. Did I you know. See that? I that's, saw that. <laughs> that's alien DNA, girl. You know, a mutant alien that absorbs its victims and you're handling it without gloves and scattering it across the spaceship like Johnny Appleseed? I mean, come on. You better be glad that this is family hour because otherwise you've got the makings for real horror here. Wow. Yeah, that was very careless of them. Uh, again, call corporate safety. Well, but, you know, I mean, we all know what's going on. And behind the scenes, they don't have time to reshoot any of these things just because she drops a big clump of deadly alien DNA on the floor. <laughs> mm, deadly. So, sure enough, we go outside, though, and our our worst fears have come true because the force field isn't working. You know, well, what are we going to do? We'll have to recharge it, and it, apparently it's going to take 24 hours to recharge. What's up with that? 24 <laughs> hours to recharge a force field that was left on overnight? Whoever designed that battery wasn't thinking of very practical terms yeah. and i rescind my earlier suggestion to have the women in charge of the defensive duties mm. though i mean they blew it that's okay it. all right duly noted so so then the ladies go inside to get the charger and smith is left outside to watch in horror as penny is playing fetch with the dog or what he thinks is an alien emissary and he's trying to maintain a respectable distance from their hijinks when penny throws the stick that she's using by the force field projector where it just happens to land next to a laser pistol in its holster lying right next to the spot where that stick landed and we can see this coming a mile away the dog runs over and instead of picking up the stick he gingerly pulls that pistol out of the holster i wonder how many times they had to shoot that before he got it right and he holds it with his teeth and then he stands up in his hind legs and he does everything but pull a trigger on panicking dr smith and this is another bit of silly comedy but the comedic musical cue and everything and right on the heels of some serious developments that we've had in the story but smith plays along he raises his hands and surrender and then the dog just runs off with the weapon <laughs> yeah well i think you know a lot of people in the audience are probably wishing dog do everyone a favor and pull the trigger you know i know if don were there that's what what he would be cheering on but no he takes off with the pistol and runs off screen uh, apparently towards the mutant for all we can tell yeah, but this is funny because then Penny walks back over to Dr. Smith and he's still sort of got his hands up in the air and she says, what are you doing? And Smith starts doing a very lame attempt at calisthenics. So just stretching my inquisitive little bitty body, just stretching. Yeah, <laughs> like that. that was kind of silly. It was very silly. Then she asked the questions we're all wondering, Dr. Smith, when will you stop being so silly? You poor child, you'll never understand until it's too late too late he mm. says as out of earshot you know and this is i'll get on my soapbox for just a second i do find these little writing devices annoying sometimes because it bothers me anytime characters go out of the way not to tell another character something important sort of like john not telling anybody about there might be mutants out there or smith not telling anyone at this point that he thinks the dog is some sort of shape-shifting alien i I don't know why. I always get annoyed with that. But it keeps the action rolling, so... Well, you kind of see the not-so-invisible hand of the writer materialize during times like that, don't you? You know, mm. it's, It goes from being a semi-transparent hand to this dark boxing glove just pounding you in the face, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, 
It's true. Hey, they got they only got to narrow tell their story, so they got to do it somehow. Yeah. So next, the ladies return outside with a battery charger, and interestingly, Maureen is armed with a holster and a laser, and she says they're going to have to remain armed for the time being. They don't know that Penny is out looking for her missing puppy, who's busy burying that pistol just like a prized bone. Well, at least it's a puppy, so the worst it could do is bury a gun in the sand. If it had been a cat, just imagine what they bury in the mutant sandbox and how pissed the monster would get at that. Literally. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Just then we see lurking behind that nearby rock formation is that dastardly mutant. And then we get a nice close-up of his face. And as you said, he does need a shave and a haircut. But uh, those fangs, I got to say, I'm, I, I'm liking those fangs. That uh, That's some nice little dental <laughs> dental work there. Well, yeah, I think those are the same fangs Michael Landon wore and I was a teenage werewolf. Do you remember that one? <laughs> yes, I remember that one. That's right. Hopefully yeah. they cleaned him, though, you know. Yeah. We cut quickly back to the ship, and Judy discovers that her weapon has disappeared. And, of course, they don't know that the dog has taken it. So the tension is building. She goes, it, it was right there a minute ago. What happened to it? Marine calls her Penny, who fortunately hears her and runs back to the ship before that mutant can strike her. But it was kind of a close call there for a second. Marine interrogates Penny about the missing weapon. But Penny says, Dad told her and Will never to touch the guns without permission. Not that those kids would ever break a rule, right? Yeah, really. They seem to believe her, though, for the time being, they allow her to continue to look for her dog as long as she stays right next to the ship. And Maureen tells Judy to look for the missing laser pistol. Meanwhile, Maureen is going to go inventory their remaining weapons supply. And this next bit... (laughs) was one of those many scenes that left my wife saying, oh my gosh, why don't they just get it over with and shoot Dr. Smith? Mm -hmm. (laughs) The the act is drawing it to a close, and we see that down in the the lower deck of the Jupiter-2, Smith is busy fiddling with some electronic parts. Dr. Smith! I'm quite busy at the moment. Our gun rack is empty. All our weapons are gone. I'm glad I had mine with me. Calm yourself, madam. I have the situation well in hand. Oh, hang the situation. I want to know where our guns are. Right here, in front of your eyes. This is our arsenal? The first duty of a good soldier is to take care of his weapons. I found our guns badly in need of cleaning. Naturally, I took appropriate action. Can you put these together again? What exactly do you take me for, madam? Some fumble-fingered recruit? Frankly, yes. I'm deeply wounded. For your information, I have the matter completely under control. Well, then, put them together. All in a good time. I may require your assistance. I don't know anything about assembling weapons. Naturally. May I borrow your gun for a moment? What for? To serve as a guide. These are most intricate pieces He quickly snatches Marine's weapon from her to, quote, use as a guide. And she's protesting and trying to get it back from him. But while while he's looking at it, he starts to take it apart again. It's some silly visual and verbal comedy, and it it makes us detest Smith. Now then, the next obvious move is to take off this little device here. That's it. Now then, compose yourself, madam. I know exactly what I am doing. With your he carries it off, though. I mean, he, he there's a column there in the spaceship, and he uses that as interference, and he goes around that column, and she can't get at him, and right. he keeps the banner going and yeah, as he takes it apart, and it's, it's pretty talented the way he pulls it off. method of reassembling the others. May I have the first piece, please? What? Uh, the first piece? Oh, never mind. Perhaps we'll use this one there. Since you're obviously devoid of any kind of mechanical aptitude whatsoever, I know that you find this very difficult to comprehend. But let me assure you, the system is foolproof. Now then, all I have to do is to place this part here. Oh, dear. There now. 
You've left us almost completely without weapons. Nonsense! I know exactly what's wrong now. This part goes with that one. Yes. No. everywhere from my gun. It's completely vanished. Naturally, the dog did it. I saw him. Just think what nefarious uses he will put it to. Dr. Smith, that's utter nonsense. Well, thank goodness we've got more. Judy, those are our guns. What? Yes, it was well staged and he did a good job at Jonathan Harris did. But again, his character has really changed a lot from previous episodes. He's not as dangerous as he was, but you know, we saw him do a lot of very technical things before, like perform a little surgery on the microsurgery on the uh, robot and of course reprogramming the robot and so forth. But now he seems to be just sort of clueless when it comes to dealing with these things. But uh, well, maybe you know, he's schizophrenic. You know, back in the 1960s, they thought that meant you had more than one personality. So one Smith is the evil genius and the other is the clueless clown. And you never know which bullet he's going to be placing in the chamber as he spins that cylinder around every week and plays Russian roulette with our expectations. Well, that's a good theory. That's a good theory. I'll have to remember that the next time he shifts like this. Which Smith is this today? And of course, Maureen is just exasperated with him. She... She is just fit to be tied. Smith has managed to render them completely defenseless. Well, it's probably a good thing that they are completely defenseless, because if they had just one pistol at that point, Smith would be dead. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that's for sure. Before we go to commercial, Maureen and Judy walk out of frame, and then the camera lingers for a second on that lower deck viewport, and we see... That mutant pry open the crash shields and peer inside. And it's a scary moment. He's just sitting there looking inside. Again, though, I, I didn't think this made sense because if you look outside at the ship, you know, the lower deck is completely underground. The ship is like buried up to the, the floor of the first deck. I was sitting there wondering, how can that mutant be outside those shields that are underground and pull them open? That didn't make sense to me. Well, he's a, he's a digger, remember? And he must have done a lot of digging because he's surrounded by darkness and there's no visible sand whatsoever. So he must have dug that side of the ship completely clean. No, it, it doesn't make any sense, a logical sense. But from a theatrical standpoint, adding him to that scene was a, well, it was a it was a mark of genius, really. I mean, he does put those bear paws against the imaginary glass. So we were reminded that there's still something keeping him out. But it was at this point I noticed that Whenever he growls, his lips never move or snarl. And I don't think that they realized he needed to growl until after all this was filmed. And they said, dudes, we got to do something here because he's <laughs> he's looking a little bit like Marcel Marceau or something here. But I'm sure glad they added it because uh, it would have just looked, you know, like a mime monster without it. It wouldn't have been scary at all. Well, they don't hear him this time, though. That's the funny part. Yeah, that's right. He he growls just as they leave, and you would have thought in that ship where there's nothing to absorb the sound, if they can hear things outside, they should certainly hear him growling inside. Yeah. (laughs) But remember, he's got that that imaginary glass between them because they don't use glass in the real loss in space. If they did that, they'd be getting the glare from the the lights. So it's all pretend glass. This is where you can tell that he is literally wearing a bear costume because it's... (laughs) Their bear paws up against the imaginary glass. But I'm glad they did that touch. It was a nice little... Yeah. He's a digger, though. i got to remember that. That's true. He's a digger because we, we always see him digging his way out of those uh, craters and everything. So that's, that's good. All right. When we return from the break to start Act 3, Penny is still outside searching for the puppy who 
you know, they haven't bothered to name him yet. She's just calling him Puppy. She doesn't realize, though, that she's in grave danger because that hairy mutant is back above ground now and he's stalking her like a lion stalking a gazelle. And it's interesting because he doesn't strike right away. He's sort of crouching behind some rocks. And then Penny finds her puppy and at first he seems happy to be reunited with Penny. But soon the puppy senses that there's danger nearby and he becomes very agitated. It almost looks like he sort of nips at Penny for a second, but he, he starts barking and then for some reason that spooks the mutant and he sort of retreats and the puppy jumps out of Penny's arms and runs after him in pursuit. Penny's left frustrated again, the dog's gone off, but she doesn't seem to follow after the puppy. Well, like I said, there may be something to Smith's theory about this dog being an evil alien. I mean, mm. first he pushes that boulder off a ledge, which just barely misses the women, and now he seems to be leading Penny on this deadly treasure hunt where the prize is getting absorbed by a mutant. <laughs> Next, we cut back to the lower deck of the Jupiter 2, and Judy is looking at that pile of laser parts left by Dr. Smith, and it does look like an impossible mess. And I'm guessing my military training is coming back here because I'm very certain they have to have uh, what we used to call a tech order, or in layman's terms, an instruction manual for those weapons, along with every other piece of equipment on the ship. All they would need to do is to pull that manual out, sort the parts by like components, and then follow a reassembly guide to get them working again. But then again, if they did that, we wouldn't have this nice plot device putting them in danger would we you're forgetting they're too busy digging through and reading all of john's confidential diary <laughs> entries to invest any time looking for a manual come on <laughs> which is more fun yeah give me that, the diary anytime i want the dirt yeah, yeah. Judy says, what a mess. What are we going to do without our weapons? And I'm glad to see more of Judy in this episode along with the other girls. That is a nice change. And I was also thinking at this point that even though they've written these girls more or less as conventional female characters for that time, they are at least trying to be a little bit more self-reliant. Of course, as soon as I thought that, the very next thing is that they get a call from John on the radio and Judy blurts out, tell him to hurry up and get back. <laughs> yeah, really. so. Uh, John's checking in while they're still on the road in the chariot, and he lets them know that they're on backup power, but the boy genius Will has rigged up a temporary generator, and I chuckled at this because for once, Maureen is trying to tell John something important about things that are going on in their current situation. But of course, before she can get a word out, John cuts her off. They can't stay on the phone long because their battery is dying. And he tells her the good news that they're going to set this relay up and it's going to work, but it's going to be a tough job. And then just to seal the deal before he signs off, he puts her completely off by telling her how proud he is that she can handle things on her own back at the ship. And I'm certainly glad I married the right girl. Yeah, I guess he decided he was going to marry Betty instead of Veronica because it sounds like there was somebody else in the running there. (laughs) (laughs) She clams up and she doesn't say a thing about what's really going on back home. Uh, She just sort of says, well, we can't wait till you get back here. And then after she hangs up, Judy sort of chides her, you didn't tell him. Maureen just sort of shakes her head and she's been totally thrown off by John's compliments. And I guess she didn't want to spoil their efforts by crying for help. Well, apparently John is a real miser when it comes to complimenting his wife, so she'd rather risk the lives of her daughters, both of her daughters, than spoil the moment and contradict his flattery. Then we cut back to the chariot. John looks sort of bothered by something, and Don even notices that. John says he's he didn't like the sound of Maureen's voice, which I thought, well, that's pretty perceptive considering she barely spoke three words. And Don says something like, uh, this, is a, this is one of the best laugh lines of the whole episode. I'm sure she'd let you know if there was something to be concerned about, because <laughs> that's exactly what she doesn't do most of the time. Well, I mean, every time she does try to do that, he cuts her off and comes up with something else. So maybe she's learned to just remain silent. Yeah. Well, then, 
all of a sudden, John's just sort of thinking, and he makes a quick decision. Turn around. We're heading back. Don is like, now? Now. We're all relieved, but will they get back before that mutant has a chance to absorb Penny, or hopefully Dr. Smith? Well, I kind of thought they blew a moment of added suspense by announcing that they were going back. Once they say that, we know the cavalry is on the way. Why not leave us dangling more by saying something more like, I don't know, I'm tempted to turn around and go back, but I'm just not sure. You know, something like that. But Yeah, that would have been nice. Yeah, I, I, I did, as an audience member, appreciate knowing it. But, you know, it may have been another one of those CBS moments where they said, no, we want to know that they're on the way back, that there's some mm. hope. Yeah. So next, we're back at the Jupiter, and Penny walks in through the hatch, and Maureen and Judy are just stepping out of the electronic elevator on the upper deck. They were finally going to go look for her, and she's upset because her puppy ran away, and Maureen says, not to worry, he'll be back, but she needs to stay put in the ship. Then Maureen goes back down to the lower deck, and Penny starts to express her fears about the dog to Judy, when Dr. Smith pops up his head from the ladder, and he starts to explain his version of current events, and he tells them that the dog is not a dog dog and all, but a, a carefully disguised alien spy reporting back to his command on how pitifully defenseless they are. Girls are skeptical. They are skeptical of him. You know, I wasn't quite sure exactly how Smith meant all that. He keeps talking about a carefully disguised alien in disguise. And yeah. it, it wasn't clear. Was he talking about like a shapeshifter or was he like talking about, you know, some little short guy who puts on this <laughs> little costume and squeezes in, you know, and sprays some bad dog breath in his mouth or something? <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, that is funny. He doesn't go into any details there. But I, I kind of took it, you know, I guess I was thinking that he was talking about a shapeshifter, but he doesn't tell us. So it is always d- fun, though, to hear Dr. Smith letting his fears get the best of him. After he's said his piece, he pops back downstairs and Penny wants to go looking for her puppy, even though mom just told her to stay inside. But then again, when has that ever stopped these kids before? Judy talks her into staying put and she agrees that she'll go look for the puppy instead, which she does. And this has disaster written all over it. Yeah, well, just imagine the dilemma for the mutant. I mean, one moment he's stalking this cute little fawn child brunette, and then the next is this nubile blonde, and, you know, this is like a buffet of babes. If if Maureen joins the hunt, then he'll have a redhead to add to the, you know, selection as well. So life is good in the mutant monster business. <laughs> Apparently. Back on the lower deck, Maureen's not having any better luck than Smith did putting those guns back together and she's very frustrated and angry with Dr. Smith and she even says Dr. Smith I could just throttle you and of course he sort of meekly says I was just trying to help yeah and of course that all gets drowned out by the audience saying so could we Not to worry, though, because the cavalry has finally arrived. Penny is looking outside and starts to call Marine back upstairs. And before we even know what's happening, the music has changed to a hopeful sound, and the boys are back in town and not a moment too soon. Smith and Marine race back upstairs, and it's a happy reunion. And John tells them that they decide to cut their trip short because he got worried. And Don asks, where is Judy? And Penny says, oh, she's out looking for my dog. Dog? Yeah, they've got a lot of catching up to do there. And Maureen tells them that Judy could be in danger because there's something, something out there. I appreciated the fact that they remembered that the returning group knew nothing about the dog, you know. John is often omnipotent and knows everything, even to the point when it comes to when the sun sneezes on an alien a mile or two away. So, so that was a nice continuity bit. Yeah, that was good. That was good. 
That's all that Don had to hear, though, because he's out of that hatch in a flash to save the future Mrs. West, followed quickly by John, and they're off to look for Judy. That was another interestingly framed scene by Raleigh, because all of the other speakers were in the background near the hatch, and Dr. Smith was sort of silently standing in the foreground with his back to the camera. As the boys leave the ship and the girls walk out of the shot, the camera stays centered on Dr. Smith, and he does this sort of slow half-turn towards us, and he has this very serious look on his face. Again, he doesn't utter a word, but it really makes you think, oh boy, things are things are getting interesting. Yes, the wheels are turning. Mm, yes. Next, we cut to a scene of Judy searching for that puppy in that familiar, rocky, scorched desert terrain, and she's calling for the dog, oblivious to the danger that's lurking behind those rocks and creeping up on her. As she walks out of the frame, we get a good look at that danger. The mutant appears in full force, and he's still sort of crouching behind the rocks, but definitely tracking Judy as she searches. And this starts a series of cuts back and forth between the peaceful, clueless Judy and the menacing mutant monster it's sort of it's sort of funny she's sort of blissfully walking along unaware of danger approaching and the appropriate monster music is accompanying the monster then we get some added scenes of john and don calling for judy and at this point i'm establishing a new rule no one leaves the ship without their walkie-talkie okay folks because nobody has a way of getting in touch with each other here except calling for each other so well that's not going to stop the mutant he has his own walkie-talkie smith tossed into the quicksand and the invaders episode remember <laughs> ah yeah he probably has that that's true yeah so the boys are calling out judy very loudly but she doesn't answer just then tracker don notices judy's footprints in the soil and also some other prints following judy's prints of something large like a bear <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tracker don so. those footprints look very hungry to me don't they look hungry to you too john yeah they do <laughs> Hurry. We cut back to a scene where Dr. Smith is conferring with the robot who hasn't even, he hasn't even gotten out of the chariot. This is when it occurred to me that there's very little of the robot in this episode so far. In fact, I don't really remember hearing anything from him since he said danger, danger in the, uh, teaser. But anyway, it's another well-framed shot and the robot's head is in the foreground inside the chariot and Smith is standing outside in the background quietly speaking to him. And Smith's bringing the robot up to speed about all the dangers they face from an alien heading back to its headquarters. And he says, you know, any suggestions? And the robot says, if you if you want a thing done right, do it yourself. And Smith demurs for a second. He's got all the brains, but he needs more manpower. To which the robot replies, form a posse. And Smith likes that idea, and the wheels are spinning again in his head. But there's only one male left, and that's Will. And here we see the old, deceptive, tricky Smith again, just like we saw in the Invaders episode. Although it just seemed a little odd whenever he's asking the robot for suggestions on, you know, some malevolent plan. So it's one thing to see Smith go back and forth, but then when the robot seems to kind of be joining in on how to do something (laughs) devious, it does seem a little bit odd. But I just like seeing the robot, you know, included in this episode. Like you said, he's been pretty quiet. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's going to get to do a few more little things before it's over with, because now we get some scenes between Smith and Will that are very well executed with some nice effective close-ups. Smith convinces Will to join him and the robot in his posse to hunt down the alien spy, the dog, and kill him. Well, things seem to be going quite nicely here. It's not so hard. I'm delighted to hear you say so, my boy. You've passed my test with flying colors. There's one. Test? What test? Naturally, I could have put this gun together myself in jig time. But I wanted to see if you could. There's nothing to it. What a delightfully gifted boy you are. 
But then my unerring instinct for detecting talent had long since selected you as the most outstanding. In fact, of all the Robinsons, I consider you the most talented. I try to do my job. Precisely, that's exactly what I meant. And there is a job to do right now. What kind of a job? How would you like to fulfill the dream of every boyish heart? As fate would have it, I happen to be in a position at this very moment to deputize you. Deputize me for what? A posse, of course. Together, we're going to hunt down a very dangerous spy. Where would a spy come from around here? In your absence, your sister Penny acquired a pet, a dog. At least, she thinks it's a dog. But in reality, it's a very dangerous alien spy. A dog? Now, now, don't leap to conclusions. This particular spy is fiendishly clever with disguises. But we three will track him down and kill him. Won't we, my boy? Kill the dog? No, no, the spy. Remember, he threatens the safety of our entire little group. You will help me track him down, won't you? You bet. Stout lad. Now, the oath. On your feet, sir. Raise your right hand. You too. Do you both solemnly swear to enforce the law and uphold justice in accordance with the orders you will receive? Answer, I do. I, I do. do. Done. The posse is formed. We are about to strike a blow for liberty. Well, I love that the drama that Smith added when Will was asked what kind of job he wanted to do. And he goes, shh. <laughs> he tiptoes around the room as if somebody's <laughs> eavesdropping, like there's a spy there. He says, how would you like to fulfill the dream of every boyish heart? <laughs> it's so beautiful. Yeah. And he's really selling that kill the spy thing. There. Oh, and That's... the music you hear in the background, is it's, it's like a, a wooden xylophone. So yeah. it's got that. You know, it's very spooky. Yes, and it's done well. Will's all of a sudden right on board, so that that worked out well. Before the act ends, we cut quickly back to Judy walking through the desert. That mutant has finally managed to creep up to within striking range, and his vicious growls at last alert her to his presence. But we're going to have to hold a little longer just to see what happens next as we go to commercial. When we return from the break for the final act, we're treated to a montage of quick cuts between different points of action. John and Don, they're still searching for Judy, who's being chased into a box canyon by the mutant. Those box canyons are everywhere on that planet, I guess. Yeah. She's running for her life, which doesn't look easy in that skirt she's wearing. And she manages to stay a couple steps ahead of the monster. She climbs up on a ledge, which at first I thought would give her some reprieve, but that mutant's pretty agile because he climbs right up after her. And then we cut back to the men and suddenly Penny's missing puppy shows up and he's barking and agitated about something. And they quickly realize that he's doing the lassie bit and wants them to follow him, which they do and on the double. And we see that little fellow running like the wind with John and Don in hot pursuit. And then next we cut to 
to the Smith Posse. They're on their own search and destroy mission. And the robot is leading, of course, with Will and Smith with, with their laser pistols drawn following closely behind. And the robot hears the dogs barking, so they're getting closer. Oh, the suspense. Who will be shot first, the mutant or the dog? Oh, I mean spy. This particular <laughs> dog is fiendishly clever with disguises. Yes. Then we're back at that canyon, and the dog has led them to Judy, who's still up on the ledge fighting back that mutant. And then... As the men approach, the mutant turns his attention to them, and he's sort of hiding behind a rock, and he catches John off guard before he can fire his laser, and he throws him to the ground and knocks him out. And Don manages to avoid the creature's claws, and he scoots out of the way, disappearing behind some other rocks. And I mean, the mutant is confused for a moment when Don escapes, but he quickly turns his attention back towards Judy, who's still up on that ledge, and he starts to climb up to get at her, presumably to absorb her organic tissues. So she's very frightened, and I thought Marta Kristen sold the terror that Judy is experiencing very well and she she tries to fend off the mutant by throwing some rocks but he's relentless and again there's some good direction here it's shot from Judy's perspective as we see that beast getting closer and closer to her precarious location I think they're using a um a handheld camera at that point you know it's kind of jarring and it yeah. just it makes you feel like it's more like a documentary right and, right and, and I also love the fact that you know she's throwing rocks at that monster but you would never guess it because of the effort that she's acting as she's exerting these lightweight pieces of styrofoam she really looks like she's really trying hard to throw these what way like shock puts to her but right. you've got all this loud thuds whenever they hit that mutant so it's very <laughs> convincing and let's not forget the dramatic music and you have to give the monster credit too he's kind of a ladies mutant he left judy to ambush john and don but then when he had an unconscious john right at his feet that he could have absorbed he instead stops and goes back for the cute blonde so he's got taste yes yes yeah that's true he could have he had an easy kill right there didn't he yeah but you know he wants the lady he wants yes. the cute can you blame yes. him I could, you know, I could relate. Before that mutant can grab Judy and absorb her, Don climbs down from on top of the rocks. He's managed to get himself up there, and he tries to save Judy. And then I thought this was what you know, he literally picks Judy up in his arms, and he's sort of carrying her across the top of that rock wall as the mutant is just a couple of steps behind. And, of course, he loses his footing, and he rolls off the wall and drops Judy, who also rolls down to the ground. <laughs> I mean, it's a three-ring circus here, really. But Yeah, but I guess maybe he breaks her fall because she lands on him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that that's his uh, that's him being a, a gentleman here. You can land on me. Exactly. Fortunately, uh, they both roll over out of the way for the mutant to follow when, when that time comes. Yeah, which is just right in the next second because John manages to recover from his concussion in the nick of time and he shoots the uh, beast with a laser pistol. I guess I can forgive him this time because. You know, we were commenting last time about it's always shoot the aliens first and ask questions later around here. But the mutant does fall. He falls down from the wall and he's seemingly down and out for the count. And the danger has passed for the moment. It gets very calm and they're all trying to recover. And then we quickly cut to the Smith posse and the robot no longer hears the dog, but apparently he can smell him. So they continue on the trail. So he not only has ESP when he needs it, but he can actually smell, you know, a track <laughs> like that. That's pretty amazing. Yes. And I think Smith even says something like he, he, he can be a veritable bloodhound at times. So mm-hmm. they cut again back to the box canyon and John is dusting himself off and he runs over to help Don. 
no, Judy, and Penny's dog has disappeared for the moment, and when Judy regains her composure, she insists that they look for him. After all, he's partly responsible for saving her life, so okay, they'll go and do that. At the Jupiter, Marine has discovered that Will Smith and Robot are missing, and she's pretty pretty upset about that, and Penny offers to go find them, but she's quickly shut down. Then we're back with the Smith posse, and the robot has again homed in on the dog, and Smith... <laughs> Smith decides that this would be a good point to send Will out as a patrol. And then before he leaves, he warns him, remember, if you should contact the alien... Shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then he sends him off with just another little Boy Scout pledge ceremony where they put their hands up and do your duty. Do your duty. Do your duty. Yeah, yes. it almost sounded like some of the, the one of those uh, cults that's trying to prepare everybody for some sort of mass suicide or something. Just get them to repeat the pledge over and over again. And, <laughs> but it works. Uh, it I does. Mean, when, when Will leaves, he's totally prepared to shoot that dog. Oh, he's got a real serious look on his face as he goes marching off into the terrain there. But the the ending of that scene was cute because Smith is still sort of absentmindedly holding the robot's claw, and then. <laughs> Then when he looks down and realizes what he's doing, he sort of pushes the claw away in irritation. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it's all phony baloney for Smith. He never right. cared for that. <laughs> the funny part is that the that the robot let him continue to hold his claw. You know, like, yeah. you know, it's like, I like this. You know, I like yeah. getting a little tension. <laughs> Smith is like, ah, get away from me. Uh, and the robot is an innocent. He's into it. He likes yeah. being included in all, right. all of this. <laughs> That's what's so <laughs> pathetic about it. This poor <laughs> robot. You know, Smith, at every opportunity, loves to just swat this this poor robot down. You know, it's like entertainment yeah. for him. Well, the action isn't over, though, because, and the bad news isn't either, because that mutant we find out next isn't dead. He wakes up, and he's really not happy. He rises up, and he sort of arches his back and lets out this really loud bellowing scream. I'm not sure what kind of noise that was. It, it was obviously some kind of animal noise, but it was really effective. Oh, Sasquatch. Yeah, that was a Bigfoot noise. They probably recorded it, <laughs> you know, in the Andes. Yes, In Search Of, or whatever was that show that was on in the 70s. Leonard Nimoy, Spock is the narrator. Yes. Okay, so again, like you mentioned, we're cutting back and forth. We're not lingering on any of these groups for very long because we're back with Judy and the men. They're still looking for Penny's dog, and Judy's still a little bit shaken up because they need to stop for a rest. John is ready at this point to give up looking for the dog and get back to the ship, but Judy convinces him to keep searching for just a little bit longer, which is good because they have no idea that the Smith posse are out all also looking for the dog and the mutant is now back on the prowl so we're we're also all in danger at this point we see that mutant he's back in his stalking mode he must have picked up will's scent and next we get a scene that i call will's choice kind of like sophie's choice is he going to do his duty sir or is he going to spare the puppy yeah he's found the the puppy and he you know he kind of like sticks the tongue out the side of his mouth and bites down on it as he aims that pistol real Mm. clear and you know he's going to nail him i mean he's will never misses everybody else seems to miss but will he's he's a crack shot yeah well it's it's particularly hard because now the the puppy has gone into full cutesy mode i mean he's literally sitting there standing up on his hind leg with his tongue out wagging his tail (laughs) and will has got that pistol and then we get the voiceover of smith (laughs) and remember my If you should contact the enemy, shoot first and ask questions later. Now, of course, this if the dog had done something like take a poop at this time, he'd be toast. But because he's Mr. Cutesy, we really feel it pulling on our, our heartstrings. And, of course, Will spares him. 
I can't does. do it. I can't do it. I no, can't. He, he can't do it. He drops the gun. He actually drops his, his pistol, and he runs down, and he, he grabs the dog and starts petting him, you know, and it's Will's puppy now, I guess, and he's lost out to Will. That's the moment when John, Don, Judy, they all show up, and they're shocked to see Will with the dog, but when Smith shows up with the robot, they need no further explanation and. <laughs> In fact, John says something like, oh, well, that explains everything. And then Dr. Smith says, of course. Never fear, Smith is here. Smith still thinks that the dog is the alien spy. But before that can be settled, that pesky mutant strikes again. And he suddenly appears from on top of a large nearby rock formation. And he springs down on top of John and Don. Judy's frozen in terror and Smith has already surrendered. He's throwing his arms up. The beast is getting the better of the men. And I really don't understand why the robot doesn't jump in to defend the family. Here. He just stands there like a statue. Where's all his 50,000 volts of electricity? Just following orders. Besides, you never say please. <laughs> uh, luckily, Will's new pet, the dog, repeats his gun-grabbing policy and fetches that laser for Will, who fires a shot at the beast in the nick of time. But the beast isn't killed. He's just a little wounded. And Will manages to run over and wake John up, who's being knocked out for a second time. And when John comes to, he takes the gun from Will, and he starts to fire several good bolts at the beast, who's screaming out. And he's right next to a helpless Judy, but Don manages to pull her away from the beast and back to safety. The last moments that we see of this story are cool because the mutant really doesn't die. As far as we know, he just sort of crawls back over to one of those smoking craters and slithers down into it head first. I kind of like that. Head first, and he disappears under the quicksand, never to be seen again. And I thought that was a pretty interesting effect because it, it did sort of look like he was burying down into those Cheerios or whatever it was they were using for the quicksand. Uh, maybe they were Rice Krispies, but uh, <laughs> I, I, was just re- I was just relieved that for once they don't kill the planet's wildlife. The turtles, the ostriches, the cyclops, they all wind up being dead whenever they guest star on Lost in Space. So perhaps CBS told him to go easy on the animal annihilation after complaints from the SPCA. That's uh, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Aliens, I guess. Mm, Yeah. Well, they're apparently all endangered species because they're all one-of-a-kind aliens. There's only one cyclops, there's only one skunk cabbage, and there's only one of these uh, bear mutant alien goat-horned creatures, whatever you want to call him, Wolfman Jack or whatever he is. Yeah, you'd think uh, they'd at least keep some of these guys and you know put them in the freeze tubes and fill it up with pickle juice or something i mean they're rare <laughs> specimens if nothing else and this is the this is a cyclops we killed and over here is the rare uh thorned turtle and over here is the uh, peacock-headed uh, ostrich and oh, oh and that, those tasted it? very good by the way those <laughs> that ostrich burger is something to write home about <laughs> we're we've saved a tube here for the sand monster we're hoping to get him next time around but he's he's still down there the one that got away. <laughs> so that was the end of that. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, what'd you think overall about one of our dogs is missing? Well, well, it's not the top third, but you know we haven't really seen any of the bottom third so far, and this is a good loss in space. It's not the best. The monster may not have been as terrifying as I like, but he was terrifying enough for that audience at that time. And and I kind of like, you know, that that dated sort of stuff. It sort of brings back a lot of really neat memories. And he certainly got the blood pumping, especially when he was up there on those rocks getting into Judy's face. And I loved his creepy sandbox lair and the fact that he was absorbing his victims. And I also appreciated the fact that he's still alive and tooling around under the surface somewhere. Maybe we'll he'll pop up again for a sequel or something. But actually, I like the underground alien subplot even better than the main puppy plot although smith's efforts to get the innocent will to kill the canine 
provide a lot of empathy and tension there. So I was looking forward to seeing this episode and it did not disappoint. Although I didn't particularly crave to see it again, I had to, obviously, in order to, you know, take notes and everything. And by golly, I enjoyed it just as much the second time. So uh, I liked it. Quality-wise, it's very similar to last week. So give it a C for plot and an A for everything else. Okay. Yeah, middle third. I don't disagree with anything you said. And I don't have a whole lot to add. I, I was a little put off by some of the more buffoonish characterizations that Dr. Smith had in this one. But I'm going to keep in mind what you said about he, his split personality there. <laughs> That'll make me cope with it a little bit better. It is rather ironic he's a psychiatrist or a psychologist and if he was suffering from that dilemma. but Yeah. And, you know, there it is unresolved what happens to the mutant. We never see him again as far as I can remember. So he just buried his way down to the other side of the planet, I guess. But the other dangling issue is what I'll call the one of our dogs is missing forever because everyone on the show loved the dog, but he's gone and quickly forgotten. And uh, there's some background information to that. According to Mark Cushman in the book, the puppy was actually supposed to be a permanent addition to the cast, actually replacing Debbie the chimp, who was demanding a raise, I think. No, I'm just kidding about that. But <laughs> but uh, they had some problems with the dog during the filming of the episode, and that's part of the reason why it went seven days versus six. So Irwin just made a quick decision at the end of the show and said, cut the dog, cut my losses, and cut the dog. So uh, Debbie the bloop was relieved. Oh, my God. So you mean to tell me that Irwin basically did to the dog what Will couldn't do on TV? He he really pulled the trigger? He pulled the trigger. Wow. Exactly. I mean, the chip. <laughs> nips somebody on the set and they yank out all its teeth and then the dog blows a line or two and they throw him under the bus yeah wow did. Yeah. or was it that they tossed him in the sand pit for the mutant <laughs> i mean these hollywood execs they really play for keeps Yeesh. Yeah. i was yep. joking before when i said the directors were found in the trunk of their cars but now i began to wonder the ones that went over the budget yeah they just sort of disappear the dogs are in the trunk huh yeah <laughs> The dog's head is on the the chest of the director. He wakes up in the morning. What's this? I think the mistake they made was not giving him a name. I think if they'd bothered to name him something, maybe they would have been forced to keep him, but no. Yeah, that, that, that should have been the first warning, you know. <laughs> they, they gave him a name. Uh, Penny, let's just call him Puppy for now. Well, why? I think he should have a name. Uh, you'll find out next week. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and after all, Marie never did commit, did she? So. No. Okay, before we finish, let's talk a little bit about the cliffhanger on this episode. We'll go into it in detail next time. But we see John, Judy, and Dr. Smith are at the drill site. It's interesting because John's been working up a sweat, apparently, because he's down to his T-shirt again. However, Dr. Smith is sitting bundled up in a parka, and I thought that was kind of funny at first. Judy is taking some Geiger counter readings from the drill site, and John's pleased with the results because apparently it's a very rich vein of ore that they found. In fact, he says they're going to be there all day, so he sends her off to get a packed lunch for them, which she does. And then we pull around to Dr. Smith, who's sitting next to this portable refinery, which I suppose he's supposed to be watching, and he's delighted that the machine is beating its little heart out to make deuteronium fuel for their departure. John says, well, we're going to need four more canisters of that fuel to blast off the planet. And Smith's not worried. He starts another long-winded monologue about how success is all but assured. But in the background, we see that while John is distracted, this strange alien vine starts to creep up around his foot. And then it actually just wraps itself around his ankle. And Smith is sort of frozen in terror as usual. And that vine starts to drag John 
John toward it. John starts calling for help, but Smith doesn't move. And Never fear, Smith is not here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He does sort of starts calling, help, help. But John is being drawn back into another, guess what, sand pit, right? And he's almost up to his neck in the pit. And we've all got a bad feeling about this before what happens. The freeze frame takes over and we're warned to stay tuned until next week to find out what happens next, kids, as we go to end credits for One of Our Dogs is Missing. I guess we'll be stuck in suspense like Professor Robinson until next week, Kurt. Oh, you bet. With that, folks, this wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 14th episode of Lost in Space, Attack of the Monster Plants. I'm looking forward to this one. So until then, take care and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel.